Well, good morning. My name is Gordon, a member of the preaching team here at St. Paul's. Good to see you this morning. Thank you, Catherine. Good morning. <laughs> you are awake. <laughs> I wonder how you feel when um, uh, someone you care about seems to be missing out on something you think matters. Perhaps that person's been disillusioned over time. Perhaps they've gone astray. Perhaps they can't see through the fog. Uh, Perhaps they didn't concentrate when they were being told in the first place. Perhaps they've underestimated the difficulties or they've overestimated their ability to cope. I have a great opportunity this afternoon. I have a rare opportunity this afternoon. Myself and my wife are meeting for the first time in 16 years uh, the couple who prepared us for marriage. Um, and who then went on to marry us. And I've got a few questions for him. Things he never told me. 1 Corinthians is Paul's letter to a church that he founded, but this church is struggling, and he wants to encourage it to refocus. Don't draw too much of an analogy there. Let me remind you of the book of 1 Corinthians. Um, Corinth um, is a city, still is, Um, There was a major trade route in the Greek world. It was the second city, um, only to Rome. And it was the place where all the trade routes of the world came together. So every religion of the world, every every ideology, every practice, um, everything you can imagine happened in that place. Uh, The opportunity was there, and it all did happen. And the church was being influenced by these false teachers. They'd forgotten something of what Paul had taught them five years ago when he founded the church. And they were starting to go astray. And in a way, what Paul wants to do is remind them of their marriage preparation. He wants to remind them of the relationship that they have with Jesus, that they started out with, and they seem to be losing out. He wants to encourage them not to go back to their bachelor ways, but to remember all that they um, have in Christ and all they've been promised. We're now three weeks after Easter. Um, Jesus has died. Jesus has risen again. Uh, He's finished his ministry years. He's finished those three years. Um, So we're in a post-resurrection time. And this is really important if we want to understand Paul. Now, understanding Paul is not really always easy. Um, It's not easy in 1 Corinthians. It's certainly not easy in some of the other books in the Bible. But if we want to understand Paul, we have to understand where Easter fits in. If Easter didn't exist, if Easter hadn't happened, much of the roots of the New Testament are gone. It's the key to everything. Jesus was born into Israel at a time when the fulfillment of God's plan was all but lost. They'd forgotten what God really wanted of them in the first place. God had given them this promise that they would be a blessing to all nations. That's the Abrahamic covenant. Genesis chapter 12. You will be a blessing to all nations, and through you, all nations of the world will be blessed. But that covenant seemed further away than ever. Most of Israel had been lost into exile. Only the remnant were left. The kings, the judges, and the prophets hadn't been seen for 400 years. They didn't even rule their own country. They were overrun by the Romans. Being a blessing to all nations and making Yahweh known in every nation of the world... It seemed as far-fetched for them then as it would be for uh, the British Empire to come back in time for the Queen's Jubilee. It's not going to happen. So when Jesus came at the very lowest point of Israel's history, when it had all but gone, 
when everything they've been promised, everything they've been prepared for, everything they've been taught, just seems to be a bit of a, a donor. They'd lost it all. And yet Jesus came and he made the Father known. He demonstrated the power of God. He raised the sick. He, healed, he raised the dead. He healed the sick. He forgave the prostitute. He rescued sinners. He reached out to the outcast and he proclaimed the year of the God's favor. And he said that the kingdom of God, which had been promised so many centuries before, was imminent. It was about to come. And everything he said and did was in anticipation of Easter. In anticipation of what was just about to happen in his death and resurrection. Now I know what you're, I know what you're thinking. Why is he talking about Easter? We've done Easter. We're supposed to be on 1 Corinthians. Did you ever, as a child, um, take a lens and try to focus the sun's power through it onto the edge of a piece of paper and set your classroom alight? Great, some of you did. I did, and I failed, fortunately. But that lens, that lens is Easter. That lens is God's way of focusing all his power, all the power of the Godhead. He focuses it through the lens of the cross onto our lives. Do you remember what Jesus said to his disciples after he'd risen again? He came and he found found them. And he said in in Acts chapter 1, he said, wait in Jerusalem. Wait for what? Wait in Jerusalem and I'm going to send the Holy Spirit who will come upon you and empower you. That was a direct consequence of the cross. And all of Paul's teaching hangs on this. So if we go back to the beginning of the book of 1 Corinthians that we're about to read. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 2, it says, To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Who call on the name of the Lord. In other words, you've been changed by Jesus and you're calling on Jesus' name to enable you to live your life. Notice he doesn't say on God's name. He says on Jesus' name. That's very important. Calling on Jesus' name, drawing down that power of God through that lens, the cross, into our lives. We are empowered. And again, he carries on in that same opening chapter, uh, verse 17 and 18. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And that's the word that we need to grasp in order to unlock chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians. The power of God. If we're going to exercise the gifts that it goes on to talk about, if we're going to know how to operate as a body, and ultimately, if we're going to grasp that the greatest way is love, we're going to need some help. In Paul's sequel to this book, called, imaginatively, 2 Corinthians, chapter 5, verse 17, it says, We who are in Christ are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. A new creation. The power of God, the 
cosmic power of God on such a grand scale that ultimately will create a new heaven and a new earth that will transform all things, that will bring in eternity, that will make everything right. The power of God is not just on a cosmic scale. It's deeply personal to you and me. It affects our lives. It's personal for us. You are not, if you are a born-again Christian, if you're following Jesus, if you're a child of God, you are not just uh, sitting with a, a, a new coat of paint on you. You don't just have a label, child of God. You have been changed. You have been transformed on, from the inside out. You're a new creation. And we're going to spend the next two weeks looking at this chapter. Um, and I know that Chris next week is going to delve into a bit deeper in terms of some of these gifts that are listed here. Um, fortunately, I'm not going to try. I'm going to summarize this, the rest of this chapter in the context of what it says about the power of God. But I'll let others go a little bit deeper. But let's look what it says. Firstly, verse 1 to 6, Paul starts talking about the gifts which God's given each one of us. And notice, first of all, their gifts. That's obvious, it says gifts. What's a gift? Well, the word here comes from the same root word as the word grace. And grace, as we know, by definition, is free. It's unconditional. When somebody is gracious to somebody else, it's not because that person deserves anything. Grace is freely bestowed, to use that old-fashioned word, from the giver onto the receiver. It's free. And so it is with the gifts. He gives them to us freely of his own choosing and design. And in verse 18 of the chapter that we're in, chapter 12, it says, In fact, God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wants them to be. He's given us our free gifts with a purpose. And these gifts he puts into fragile hands, you and me. Mark recently referred to 2 Corinthians 4, where it tells us that this treasure is in jars of clay to show uh, that this power is from God and not from us. Our job is to do the fragile jars of clay bit. God's job is to do the empowering. And I think that's a good deal, because we often feel like jars of clay, don't we? Fragile and not able to do all that we think um, God wants of us. Again, in verse 6, it says that God works all these gifts in all. And from verse 7 to 11, that we just read a minute ago, ten times it is inferred that the gifts are given freely by God to us. They're the empowering of God, the power of new life, won through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, focused through the cross into our lives. Now, I don't know about you, but I find it hard to keep going at something when I've lost the drive, when I don't feel empowered, when something just feels a bit monotonous, it's been going on for a bit long, and you just lost the drive and lost the will to live. I am not a completer finisher, which is why I probably won't finish writing this sermon until tomorrow night. <clears throat> but when you do have the drive, things feel great, don't they? On Wednesday morning, I set off to cycle the eight miles to work. Now, Tuesday, I've had a fantastic day. Everything at work went right. Tuesday evening, Life Group. We had a great evening at Life Group together. It was fantastic. So Wednesday morning, I felt full of it. I was, I was, I was there. Everything was great. And I set off in the pouring, cold, wet rain, if you remember Wednesday. It was miserable. But I didn't feel miserable. I felt great. Halfway to work, the angels started singing. 
my bike left the road and I flew over the traffic, flew over Twickenham and arrived at work. It was amazing. I'm exaggerating. It's only seven miles to work. But for the last 18 months, for the last 18 months in the Arab world, we've seen disempowered people starting to feel empowered and exercising that power. We've seen countries changed. We've seen people give a measure of delicate uh, freedom. People who've gained hope. Not through political change or religious fervor, but because they feel empowered. And God empowers us for a purpose. I love that Louis used that word. I'll pay you later, Louis. Empowered, feeling empowered by learning. Where does that power come from? That's not from Louis. That's not because he's, he's an amazing scholar, although I'm sure he's doing great. That's because God's giving that power. He does so with gifts. And the first thing that I want to do with a gift, I don't know about you, is unwrap it and see what it is. But before Paul starts the list of what these gifts are, he draws a line in the sand. And it's in verse 3. It says, Therefore I tell you that no one who's speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. The first gift we're given after we become Christians, after we come to Christ, is the Spirit. God gives us the Spirit to live in our lives. And the first thing that the Spirit does, the reason we have the Spirit in our lives, is to point back to Jesus. And to declare him as Lord. Lord means master, chief, ruler. That he takes the prominence in our life, the first place, pole position. And what a great gift it is, it is to be able to give God glory by declaring Jesus as Lord. Not with our words, but with the spirit that lives within us. That Jesus truly is proclaimed Lord in our lives. Ultimately, that's God's desire. That the lordship of Jesus Christ is complete. That means that he becomes Lord over all. In our lives, in our relationships, in the whole cosmos, Jesus becomes Lord. The true sign of a Christian is not one who preaches well, or speaks in tongues, or raises the dead, or does any other number of amazing things. The true sign of a Christian is one whose words and actions and life proclaim Jesus as Lord. That's somebody who's living in relationship with God. Jesus is proclaimed Lord through their lives. So Paul goes on to explain that God gives gifts. God gives gifts in order for them to be effective. Verse 7 to 11. They're given for the common good. And when he then lists some examples, he mentions wisdom, knowledge, faith, healing, miraculous powers. And what's evident here, and I know Chris will go into this in more detail next week, is that every Christian is given a gift. Verse 7 and 11 say explicitly uh, that the Spirit gives us gifts. Every one of us. The two go hand in hand. If you can declare Jesus as Lord, you are gifted by God. Every one of us. It's not just for some. It's not just for those who are ordained, or those who've been uh, baptized or christened, or those who can play in the band, or those who serve in some ministry. It's not just those who feel, yes, I, I, know, I know that God's given me this gift. Every single one of us who declare Jesus as Lord is given a gift. 
God expects us to use those gifts. He expects us to use what he's given us. Do you remember the, um, the parable that Jesus taught about the, the three servants and the master? The master went away and he left three servants with gifts. And he said, do something with them. And two of them made 100% profit. And one of them, either because he didn't trust the bankers or he was lazy, didn't do anything. And the master, God, was not happy. God's gifts are meant to be used. He gives them to us for a purpose. And if we don't use them, then not only are we wasting the gift, but we're missing out on what God wants. I don't know if you've ever given a gift to somebody and um, you expect, when when you give somebody a gift, you expect them to use it, right? Use it or eat it or enjoy it, depending on what it is. As long as they don't eat flowers, that's fine. And if you give somebody a gift and they just put it in the drawer, you notice. And you're upset. When I give my wife flowers, which I do sometimes, I know where she puts them in the house. I know how long she keeps them out. And I drop in subtle comments like, nice flowers, to show that I'm watching. And yet, do you know what happened to the disciples after the resurrection? You know what they did, don't you? They went back fishing. After three years of teaching, healing, sending them out to do the same thing, standing up for the poor and the downtrodden, standing against the religious leaders, preaching to them about the kingdom of God, and then dying for them, Jesus finds the disciples fishing. And in John 21, we find, I think, one of the most patient phrases ever spoken. He was quite justified to come to the beach and to shout, What are you doing? But instead, I like to think with gritted teeth, he says, Have you got any fish yet? Why are they back fishing? I really did mean you. Yes, I know you're fishermen. But I really did mean you. I meant you to go and do this thing. Now, you may be a fisherman. That's cool. You may be a teacher, a tax collector, a banker, an office worker, a mum. Whatever it is you do, that's great. And that's important. And we have a job to do. But you're also an empowered child of God. Given gifts by God to serve him. Not just a a few. Not just those of us who've been Christians longer or in ministry, but everyone. It's really hard to do the shopping, stand on the tube, sit in the office, write an email, and feel a super Christian every day, like Chris. But equally, it's impossible to live in a world where there is not spiritual war to fight, sickness to overcome, depression to speak into, situations to deal with, encouragement to give, or messages from God to deliver. Those are the very real needs of our world. And whether or not you feel like a super Christian every moment of the week, there are realities, real needs around us that we live in that God has given us gifts to deal with. The gifts are not high and fluffy. The gifts are real and raw and to deal with real life situations. I'm really building Chris up for what he's going to say next week. I've got great anticipation for this now. (laughs) He's not even written it yet. These are very real gifts. Whether 9.15 in the office on a Monday, 
4 o'clock at the school gate, or indeed at 11.30 on a Sunday morning in church. Gifts to exercise for the common good. And the second half of this chapter is a text which we don't have time to go into today. Let's hope Chris does it next week. Um, But it talks about us as a body. The body exercising the gifts together for the common good, but each of us taking our place. Now, I I interviewed somebody this week for a job, uh, last week, and uh, I interviewed this person for a position where there's already two other people in the same role. There's a team of three. And halfway through the interview, I suddenly realized, if I'm trying to interview this person to choose them to be exactly the same as the other two people I already have, I'm not going to end up with a team. I'm going to end up with a production line. And I don't want that. I'm going to miss out on the uniqueness of this person. Every one of us has something unique to bring to the party. Someone who will give something that no one else can. And in any team, we need unity and diversity. That's why God gives us different gifts. That's why the gift you, you have, I don't have. And the gift that I have, you don't have. Not in the same way, not in the same measure. God gives us different gifts to work together as a body in unity. And in a few weeks, we'll be watching the Olympics, won't we? And we'll see some runners run around and pass a baton on. And we'll see some cyclists change position as they cycle along. And we'll see rowers sit in the, in the seat given to them in a boat. And, and it's not by random that they end up in those positions. Oh, you go first today, I'll go third. No, I fancy going last. No, they've all got specific gifts. They know where they fit in. They know what their position is in their own body. And so in verse 18, it tells us that God has arranged the body just as he wants. He's given you a role to play that is unique to you. No one can ever take your place in the body of Christ. Because God has sculpted you and has left his fingerprints on your life. That you are unique in your position. You're unique in the gifts that you have, and you're unique in the place that he's put you in the body of Christ. You've been empowered by God to declare Jesus as Lord. You've been given gifts that are to be used for the purpose that God has for you, and you've a role to play that no one else can. And the body needs you. Everybody else needs you to play your part, that we can be all that God wants us to be. Moses led a people. Noah built a boat. Esther saved her people, John preached, Matthew wrote a book, Wilberforce wrote a law, Mother Teresa healed the sick, but equally millions of others have done things that no one else will ever write or talk about. They've used their God-given, spirit-empowered, cross-focused gifts to be all that God wants them to be, not to go back to being a bachelor, but to enter into that marriage relationship that the body of Christ has with Christ that we would enter all that Christ has for us.